but good to be back here this morning with you. Right, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to page 1096, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're doing this series in the book of Acts, and as we go through this, we're seeing how the book of Acts describes things for us of what happened in the first 30 years of the history of the church, and it is a description more than a prescription, so as we read through Acts, it's more this is what happened rather than this is what you now need to do in uh, Paul and Bournemouth in the 21st century. It's description rather than prescription, but the book of Acts does give us a model of what the church could be like and what the church often should look like. So even though it's not prescriptive for us and everything, it does give us a model of the kind of things we're looking to emulate in terms of the kind of church we want to be. Also, the book of Acts often presents us with a real challenge because as we look at the model of that first church and those first churches as they were established around the Roman Empire, we can see things about the expectations of what church life was meant to be, what it looked like to be a people together on spirit-empowered mission, which can be a real challenge to us, can challenge us in some of our attitudes and expectancies and behaviors. And also the book of Acts provides us with something of a dream that in the picture of the church, which is described, it gives us something to dream for in terms of what we might hope for in our day of what God could do in our context, at our time of history. Uh, the book of Acts spanning a period of 30 years and as we dream about what God might do in us and through us and by us over the next 30 years, what might God do here and what might come out of this church over the next 30 years, uh, which we can't even imagine, but we can perhaps dream about the kind of things that God can do and the kind of impact that God could make. So that's, that's what we're hoping to be stirred with as we look at the book of Acts. And this morning's passage is a fantastic one. It's a story I love in terms of what it shows us of the church as as a, as a model to us of what church could be. And there is a challenge to us in that as well. And there's something to dream for too, I think. And the context of what we're going to be looking at, we're picking it up at verse 23 of Acts chapter, chapter, Acts chapter 4, is that uh, the previous long passage, all the way from the beginning of chapter 3 and the first half of Acts chapter 4, has been an account of the apostles uh, Peter and John going up to the temple to pray. And as they're going to pray, they see a man who's lame, a man who's been lame since birth, and suddenly inspired by the Holy Spirit, they decide to say, be healed, and he gets up and he's completely healed. Uh, Dan preached on this here last week. And this causes a bit of a rumpus at this man who everybody's seen sitting at the temple gate for, he's in his 40s, seen him for his whole life, begging for his existence. A lame man, suddenly up, walking, praising God, and Everything goes crazy. The apostles get arrested, taken before the council of the leaders. The apostles are held and questioned and threatened by those who have authority and don't like what's going on. How outrageous that someone who's been lame and had to beg for his living for 40 years is now healed. They're outraged by this. And then we're going to pick it up at verse 23 where it says this. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up 
and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Hallelujah. I want to uh, use this passage to look at three questions this morning. Who are you? What is God doing? And why pray? Who are you? What is God doing? And why pray? First, who are you? Last night we had the glories of the Eurovision Song Contest. Did anybody actually bother to watch it? Oh, a few. Ah, interesting. Uh, and uh, in a few weeks we've got the glories of the Football World Cup starting. And uh, yeah, which is worse, Eurovision or the World Cup? England's got equal chances in both. <laughs> and the thing about those kind of events is it's meant to be the world in unison, people from different nations coming together, but it's a coming together which is defined by competition, which is taken more seriously or less seriously depending on the nature of the event. But it's let's all come together and let's compete. Will here's wearing an Olympic Games t-shirt. It's the same thing. Let's the nations come together. We're all united. We're all united by what? By our competition. By being defined against one another. We're defined by which nation we come from. And we're competing for the glory of our nation. There's a kind of reality check about this. That we constantly measure ourselves against others. And actually, some of that isn't always unhealthy. You need to. You need to, in a sense, be discriminating. We need to discriminate. You're meant to discriminate in favor of those who are part of your tribe. You're meant to. If you didn't discriminate in favor of your family, then your family would become pretty dysfunctional. You're meant to kind of prefer those who are with you, who you're with. You're supposed to give them particular attention and recognition, and that's why that works in all scales. It works at Eurovision, the World Cup, the Olympics. Of course, it can go very badly wrong. Ends up with neighbors fighting neighbors, ends up with nations fighting nations. Something which can be healthy can become hugely unhealthy. Now, the more fundamental division between different peoples, the most fundamental division, really, is revealed in this passage. It's a division between those who are part of the people of God and those who are not part of God's own people. And there's this wonderful little phrase right at the beginning of the passage we're looking at today where it says, Peter and John went back to their own people. Or in other translations, they went back to their friends. They went back to the people to whom they belonged. And there's a strong sense here, as there is throughout the book of Acts, throughout the whole of Scripture, actually, of the people of God, the church, being the place where the people of God get their sense of identity and have their sense of belonging, have their sense of friendship, have their sense of family. That the apostles Peter and John, after this amazing moment of breakthrough, this incredible miracle, this guy being healed, and then this moment of intense conflict being 
held and questioned and threatened by those in authority, they go back to their own people. They go back to their family. They go back to their friends. They go back to their church. There's a sense of commitment here and a sense of belonging. And so something of a challenge to us right away in this passage, a question to ask ourselves, each one of us, how are we doing on that? If you consider yourself part of this church, how are you doing in terms of your commitment and sense of belonging to this part of the family of God? Do you think of us as your people? Last week up in Newcastle, there's a sense of these are my people because we're family together, the people of God. But it's different coming back here because this is you're my people much more because there's a commitment together ongoing day by day, week by week, by year by year of us seeking to serve God together in this place. It's one of the reasons why we emphasize church membership that don't just come and attend, but you actually publicly affirm your commitment to those who are part of this church. I always find it perplexing when people who are kind of around in the church don't want to make that statement of public commitment. Why wouldn't you? Because we're your people. Why wouldn't you want to display that kind of public commitment and sense of belonging? And the disciples are defined by their relationship with one another because of their relationship with God. And everyone else is defined by their opposition to God. And again, there's a challenge to us in this. There's a challenge for those, maybe some of you here this morning, who wouldn't say you're followers of Jesus. And even for me to say this kind of thing would sound somewhat offensive because you might say, well, I'm not opposed to anyone. I'm a very, a very tolerant, accommodating person. I'm not opposed to anyone. How can you just divide humanity into two categories, those who are with God and those who are opposed to God? That's just far too black and white. But we can frame maybe the issue a little differently by asking a slightly different question, the question of who's in charge in your life? Who's your boss? Because what is revealed in Scripture is that the human race is always either seeking to be in charge itself or it is submitted to the rule of God. There is that sharp line of division, those who are with God or who those who are opposed to God. And human beings generally live in opposition to God. That's what Psalm 2 says. It's what's quoted here. It's what the believers pray. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The that psalm is asking the question about who's going to be in charge? Who are we going to say is in charge? Is it me going to rule my life or going to say that it's God who's going to rule my life? And the story the Bible tells is of this natural inclination in the hearts of men and women to always oppose God because human beings want to rule things themselves. That's how the Bible begins with the story of Adam and Eve falling into sin, falling away from God. It's a question of them wanting to be their own rulers rather than God to be their ruler. It's where the story then quickly goes in terms of the story of the, of, of, of the Tower of Babel, of people gathering together to kind of build a great tower to show they don't need God. They can be their own rulers. It's a story early in Genesis of Noah, of the peoples of the earth, saying we don't need God. We're going to be our own rulers, our own kings, our own bosses. And it's a story today in Princes and presidents and prime ministers. It's a story that the psalm says. Why do the nations rage? Nothing ever changes. People's natural inclination, the hearts of men and women, is rebellion against God. There's a desire to rule 
without God, and desire to rule without God is actually rebellion against God. And so humans all the time try and do it without God. And in trying to do it without God, you're actually trying to be God, to be ruler, to be Lord, to be sovereign. And so humanity is divided into these two stark divisions, those who are with God, part of God's people, and those who are opposed to God, those who say God is in charge and those who say, no, I'm in charge. It's two groups of people. And everybody's included in this, in these these broad categories. It's why, as the disciples pray, they say, Herod, the puppet king of the Romans in Israel at the time, and Pilate, the Roman governor of the time, and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the people of Israel, all conspired against your servant Jesus. They were all united. It didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter about their ethnic identity. It didn't matter about their religious affiliation. All the peoples were united in opposition to God. That's what the disciples pray. And then you have the church. Those disciples who, rather than being opposed to God, have found friendship with God and unity with God and unity with one another. Those who've submitted to the rule of Jesus Christ, who know him and love him. People who say, no, he's in charge. God is going to be our God. God is going to be our king. God is sovereign. He's the one we look to. So this question, who are you? Who are you? Are you part of the people of God? Or are you part of the great mass of humanity which is opposed to God? Are you in charge? Or is God in charge? It can't be both and. We like both and answers in our our day. You can't be both and. You can't be, oh yeah, I'm kind of submitted to God, but I still want to be Lord of my own life. That just doesn't work. You, you can't do it. It's got to be all or nothing. And it can't be a kind of, yeah, whatever response, because this really matters. It, it really matters where you are, which side of the line you're on. Are you part of the people of God, or are you opposed to God? Are you seeking to live in obedience to God, or are you seeking to be God of your own life? It's not hundreds of different shades of choice here. It's black and white. It's cut and dried. Who are you? With God or opposed to God? Second question we could look at from this passage is to ask, what is God doing? What is God doing? On Sunday mornings, one of my habits is to check the news before I come out just to make sure nothing's happened, which might catch me by surprise before I speak. And uh, buried down at the bottom of the BBC website this morning, only there for a few minutes before it disappeared and more important things like further reports on the Eurovision Song Contest came up was a little report about how earlier this morning in Indonesia, three churches were bombed and nine Christians were killed. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. And the question you might ask is, what is God doing? What is God doing? Could have been a question these disciples asked. Look, amazing miracle, this man, lame from birth in his 40s, wow, healed. And then so much trouble comes the apostles' way. They get arrested. They get threatened. They get challenged. What is God doing? And the way that the believers pray when Peter and John go back to them tells us an awful lot about how they understand who God is and what God is doing. They pray, and they pray, Sovereign Lord. 
Yes. Who's really in charge here? Their confidence is that it is God. God is king, and his authority is full, and it is final. And so they pray out, Sovereign Lord. They don't pray tentative, Lord, if you are Lord, possibly you might be in charge. Can you help us? No, they pray boldly, confidently, Sovereign Lord. What's God doing? He's sovereign. Circumstances might be perplexing. The circumstances might be frightening. But God is still God. He's still king. He's still ruling. They pray, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Yes. Who is God? What's he doing? Well, God is creator. And thinking about God as creator of all things, the one who's made everything, the reason that everything exists being because of him is a great place to start when we want to acknowledge the sovereignty, the rule, the kingship of God. The reason anything and everything exists is because of you, sovereign Lord. That's why it's here. That's why we're here. Disciples were there. The city of Jerusalem was there. All because God had made it. Everything else is dependent upon him. Everything else is secondary to him. He's the only uncreated creator. Everything else exists because he has always existed. That means that nothing would have existed without him. We looked at these themes earlier in the year when we did our None Like Him series, looking week by week at how God is different from us. He is the uncreated creator. And so the disciples prayed, Sovereign Lord, you created. When we have those moments when we want to say to God, God, what are you doing? What is God doing? To pray, Sovereign Lord, creator of all. It's a great thing to pray. It's a good thing to pray. It's a question of perspective. It helps put things into perspective for us when we face challenges in life to think about God as sovereign Lord, ruler, king, creator of all. It helps put things in their right perspective when we're confused about how to live in this world and at times this world can be a confusing place in which to live. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on and how on earth are we going to live? How are we going to thrive personally? How are we going to thrive as Christians in this world. How do, we, how do we do it? Sovereign Lord, you created all things. Puts things into perspective. When we are very aware of our lack of resources for us as a church, as we set our eyes towards our 2020 vision and wanting to knock this building down and rebuild it again. We saying a little bit more about that this evening at the members meeting. We could say, oh, how? What can we do? What do we do? We come and say, Sovereign Lord, you created everything. The reason that bricks and mortar exist is because of you. The reason that money exists is because of you. Puts things into perspective. How are we going to withstand opposition? How do these disciples withstand opposition? Sovereign Lord, you created all things. We look to the one who has made everything. And it puts everything into perspective. It, it puts Herod into perspective and Pilate into perspective. Who are Herod? Who are Pilate? They're men who owe their existence to the sovereign Lord who created all things. Hallelujah. All part of the world that God has created. Nothing operates independently of the will of God. Maybe there's a Herod or a Pilate in your life, a dominating person or issue which seems just to, to dominate, to have control, authority, seems to rule over you. 
what you need is to put things in perspective. Sovereign Lord, you created all things. Everything else, secondary, dependent upon you. Herod, Pilate, who are they? Powerful men, yes, but subject to the sovereign God. How do they pray? They say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through your servant David. You spoke, yes, God has made the state of things clear to us as people. He hasn't left us grappling in the dark. And this means that the disciples, even as this moment of kind of conflict comes, they're not taken by surprise. What they, what they do is they turn to Scripture. They go back to their songbook. They go to the Psalms. They go to Psalm 2. They go to David's Psalm, in which David has described how what people do, what rulers do, is oppose God. They rage against God. That's what's happening now. Of course it is. We're not taken by surprise. That's just how the world is. They're not surprised by current events because God has already spoken about how things are going to be through the Scripture. They turn to the Word. We need the Word as well. We treasure the Bible, the Word of God. We need it because it's not just a historical record. It tells us how things are. It stops us from being caught out. It stops us from being taken by surprise because God has already told us how things are and how things are going to be. And we know the beginning of the story and we know the end of the story. And we know how things often work out in the middle of the story where we now are because Scripture tells us God has spoken, yes. And then they pray about Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel They did what your God, what your power and will had decided, yes. What is God up to? When all the peoples had conspired to crucify Jesus, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel all conspired to murder Jesus and it looks like a diabolical plan to kill Jesus off. It looks like human victory over God. It looks like Psalm 2 has finally reached its full fulfillment, that the nations rage against God, and now it's demonstrated finally by the nations killing Jesus, God's own Son. It looks like the ultimate demonstration of people seeking to do away with God. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to rule? The cross is a human declaration that we will, not God. But God had a greater plan, and God has greater power. And human rebellion against God, this ultimate act of treason against God, crucifying Jesus Christ, actually becomes the means by which God reconciles sinful men and women to himself becomes the means of our salvation, becomes the way by which we can be taken from those who are opposed to God to those who are united with God, becomes the way by which those of us who are seeking to rule our own lives, to be our own gods, can recognize who the true God is and be joined into his family and find peace and love and hope and joy with him, reconciled to him, hallelujah. And so the entire framework of these believers is one of confidence that God knows what he's doing. What is God doing? Well, God knows what God is doing. They don't pray here, why is this happening to us? This is such an amazing example for us, this passage. 
You'd think, that, you'd think that's what would happen. They'd get together, Peter and John come back. You'd think they'd stay, say that this amazing miracle has happened and everybody's against us. Why? What's going on? That's what I'd say probably, and it's not what they do. They pray, Sovereign Lord, creator of all things. You spoke. You planned. You have a purpose. And so there's a model for us here of how we should see and understand what God is doing. It's a model for us of how we should operate as a community together. There's a, there's a challenge for us as well. When opposition comes our way or difficulties come our way, difficulties face us, how do we respond to God? And this question of what is God doing, do we just by default say, how on earth are we going to get through this? Or do we say, Sovereign Lord, creator of all things? What is God doing? What God is doing is working out his plan. He's working out his plan that his people would be on spirit-empowered mission, taking the good news of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is God doing? God is in the business of bringing men and women out of their rebellion against him into new life with him. That's what God is doing. He's doing it here in this story in Jerusalem. He's doing it in Indonesia this morning. He's doing it amongst us. That's what God is doing. Final question then. Why pray? On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. What we see in this story is the power of corporate prayer. Prayer is not primarily a solitary activity. It's a response of the body, the people of God, to God. It's a coming together before God, asking for his power and for his help. And it's good to pray together. The truth is that even when you are praying on your own, you're not on your own because you are organically united with Christ and his people. So as a Christian, you're never alone. But it's good to be in the same space together. One of the things I love is when we pray together. 25 past 9 on a Sunday morning here. Uh, those involved in leading the service, though everybody's welcome, gathering one of the rooms back there to pray. And it's what we do. We lift our voices together. That's how we normally start. We, we say, let's call out to God together. And we all pray out to God together. And then different ones lead us. It's happened again this morning. It's just a great place to be, to be with God's people in the presence of God, asking for the power of God. Love it when we get together and pray like that. It's good. It feels good. It is good. And this... Story in Acts 4 gives us a model, gives us a model for how these first Christians prayed. And again, it's amazing, wonderful, illustrative for us that they do respond by praying. They don't respond to what has happened. They don't respond to Peter and John's story by panicking. Ah, what's going to happen to us? They don't respond by debating. How do you think we should get through this? They don't respond by squabbling. Oh, I knew this would happen. Why did you have to go and heal somebody, Peter? Why couldn't you just keep your hands in your pockets and behave yourself? <laughs> it's not what they do. They, they don't respond by panicking or debating or squabbling. They respond by praying, <laughs> by raising their voices together, a concentrated corporate effort of prayer. And it's good to pray this way. 
They pray this way because it reminds them of who God is, that he is the sovereign one, he is creator, he is in charge. And it reminds them of who they are, that they are his people. That's what happens when we pray. When we get together and we lift our voices in prayer together, we're reminded of who God is and we're reminded of who we are. It's a model for how to pray. There's also a terrific example for us here in what we should pray for. Because what they pray for here is unexpected. And for the many times I've read this story, it always hits me afresh. The kind of unexpected thing that they pray for. It's not what you would predict. They don't pray, Lord, consider their threats and please get us out of here. And they don't even pray, Lord, consider their threats and would you please mute them. It's not how they pray. What they pray is, it's remarkable. It's, Lord, consider their threats and make us bold. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us boldness. Consider their threats and make us bold to speak your word. That's amazing. It's remarkable. I think more of our prayers need to be like that. There are all kinds of things all kinds of people, all kinds of institutions, all kinds of circumstances in our world which where the opposition to Jesus is very clear. What do we need in response to that kind of opposition? What we need is boldness. We need more boldness, Lord. And so they pray for boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, do more. Lord, we want more signs and wonders. We want more evidence of your power being worked through us. And you know, that's a crazy thing for them to pray because if God answers their prayers, which of course he does, as we'll see as we go through Acts, if God does more through them, that's going to provoke more opposition. It's going to provoke more trouble. It was because of signs and wonders that Peter and John had been arrested. It was because something miraculous had happened that they got hauled before the judge and jury. And so we might actually expect these disciples to pray, that's enough, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this amazing miracle. This guy in his 40s, lame from birth, now healed. That's, that's wonderful. That was amazing. But that will do. That's enough because we don't want any more trouble. And if there are more signs and wonders, there's going to be more trouble. So can we just stick with the one amazing miracle and we can tell people about it? But that will do. That will be enough. We don't actually need any more miracles. We don't need any more signs and wonders because we don't need any more trouble. It's not how they pray. They pray more, Lord. More boldness. More signs. More wonders. More courage. More opposition. Might we pray like this? Lord, give us more. We're happy to take the flack. We'll take the pressure. If only we can know more of your power. We'd welcome some more trouble. We'd welcome some more opposition. If only we'd see more of your power at work through us. We could see more evidence. We'd see more of the kingdom breaking out through us. Lord, we'd, we're ready to take the consequences of that and what that would stir up, provoke. 
That's what we want, Lord, because we want to see your power displayed. Might we pray like that? We want to see your kingdom breaking out, Lord, so embolden us. Give us boldness that we might speak your word courageously. Lord, might that be our prayer? And as they pray in this way, something remarkable happens. After they'd prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. The place was shaken, and they were filled. They knew power, the evidence of God amongst them, indisputable, incontrovertible. Now again, the book of Acts is a description, not a prescription. We're not told that we should be praying that this building would be shaken. It's not what we're to pray for, but there's a model for us and a challenge here and a dream that, yes, Lord, we want to know, I want to know the evidence of God's power amongst us, which might not be displayed in quite the same way in our context, our setting. God does things differently in different times and places and seasons. It doesn't have to be exactly as it was there. This is description, not prescription, but Lord, we want to know, I want to know your power amongst us. And what were they shaken and stirred for? It was for bold witness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Those in charge had said, you've got to stop, you've got to stop talking about this stuff. You can't do it. You can't speak about it. You can't. They pray, they're filled, and they speak boldly. We need to pray that we would know new boldness. We can't do it on our own. You can't just crank yourself up to do this stuff. We need to know the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to know the power and the will of God. That's what the disciples pray. It was according to your power and your will that these things happened. We need to know the power and the will of God being worked through us. We need to know his will in our lives rather than just trying to do things according to our will. And we need to know his power rather than our puny attempts at power. We are called to spirit-empowered mission. And so we, like those disciples, need to pray, Lord, give us boldness that we might speak. Who are you? Are you submitted to God or opposed to him? What is God doing? he's working out his plan. And why pray? Well, because that's where we find the power of God and the will of God as we lift our voices together and ask for his grace and blessing upon us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The band will come up. Sovereign Lord, I thank you so much for this story of the, this church in Jerusalem in its first days and amazing miracles happening and amazing faith of your disciples, their desire to know more of you, not holding back, not running scared, but filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing boldness and asking for greater boldness. I pray, Lord, that we'd be people who know who we are, that we'd be those who really are committed to the family of God because we know who God is. Pray for those here this morning who don't yet know you, Lord, that you might cause them to see you and be caught up in your plan and your purpose, find new life in you. Pray, Lord, that we would have confidence in you.
those things happen, we say, what is God doing? I pray that you'd help us to remember that you are sovereign and you are working out your plan, even with things which are so confusing, perhaps painful, difficult for us. And Lord God, may we pray and pray for the right things, not pray timidly, not pray simply to have an escape from stuff that is difficult, but pray for boldness for witness because you have called us into mission to our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Fill us with boldness, Lord. May this place be filled with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us again today? Would you move amongst us in power? Fill our hearts with fresh confidence and faith in the living God because of all that Jesus is and all he's done for us. Jesus, would we in your name see miracles, signs, wonders done in our day, in our place? We ask for it, Sovereign Lord. Amen.